are the unknowns. Today we're going to talk about Matthew, Levi, son of Alphaeus. He's the last of the group of disciples that we really have much information about. The rest of the disciples are sitting next to you. The ones that are in the scripture and the ones that are around you, we, you maybe know the ones next to you better. The ones in the text, we don't have much information about. We know one's a zealot. We know some of their family members. We know that uh, both Matthew and another disciple have, the, have a father of the same name. We don't know for sure which, whether they're brothers or they just happen to have fathers with the same name. Even this disciple, even Matthew, as we begin our conversation about him, we don't know a lot about. Um, his, uh, his image, which will show up there in a minute, if you look carefully at it, he has a book in his hand. Why would, the, why would Matthew have a book in his hand? Author of the book of Matthew. Look at his feet. Note that his right foot is standing on a bag of money. Why would he have a bag of money under his right foot? Because he used to be a tax collector. And apparently they collected it with their feet. I think the artist is just simply showing his past. But we don't know a lot more about Matthew. We have a couple of things. The fact that his... Hebrew name is Levi. He has two names. He has a Greek name, Matthew, and he has a, a Jewish name, Levi. May be an indication that he is a member of the Levite tribe. Hard to know for sure. The name was given to people who were Levites and people who were not. Matthew is probably, as with most of the disciples, in his early 20s. Um, he started his professional career. He is what most people would consider a fairly, uh, fairly well-educated person among this group. Consider that the disciples in general don't have great educational uh, understanding. They're fishermen, they're day laborers, they're zealots, they're other people with other options. Morning, Scott. But they are not people who have normally had opportunity to be educated. Matthew would not have the position of a tax collector unless he knew at least Aramaic and Greek, unless he knew how to count and to be accurate with numbers. The Romans would not have invited him to take this job if he were not fairly skilled in some of those areas. The Romans weren't going to put any Joe Schmo in charge of collecting the taxes. And so we can, we can infer from some of those things a little bit about him. But again, it's an inference. It's not an absolute. We know that all of these men have witnessed life as a young Jewish person. They have walked the streets of Jerusalem. They have been to the temple. And as males, they have been to the temple at sacrificial times. Particularly, I want to draw your attention to the Passover. At Passover, millions of Jewish families would come to Israel, to Jerusalem, I should say, and to Israel from all over the world. Each one, each family would have to have a sacrificial lamb. 
So consider that they have seen days at the temple when the blood of the Lamb ran across the floor like the busiest emergency room in the world. Like the slaughterhouses where animals are killed one after another, after another, after another. Sometimes to the order of tens of thousands a day. And those sacrifices and that blood, if Matthew was actually a Levite, he would have seen it on the uniform of his father and perhaps himself. Even as a witness, it would be an awe-inspiring, somewhat gruesome thing to watch. I want you to consider that among the disciples because as we begin to unwrap the story of Matthew, I want you to consider what Jesus has to say to him in the light of such a memory. As we begin, I want to invite you to to join me for a word of prayer. Father, we're looking into your word this morning, and as we do, we ask that it not be brought to us through the heart and mind and mouth of a human being, but that your Holy Spirit would convey to each of us individually your understanding and your specific application for our lives. Help us not to deflect to the people around us, but to take in what it is that you wish to say to us. We ask for your direction and I ask for your leadership in Jesus' name. Amen. So Matthew chapter 9, you'll find the call of Matthew. In Mark chapter 2 and in Luke chapter 5, if you want to look through those, put your finger in those, put your bulletin in those, it would be a good place for you to kind of turn and kind of collect what we're doing. We're going to kind of work our way through those pieces and take some bits and pieces from those chapters. But in Matthew chapter 9, verse 9, we hear Matthew appear on the stage... He, Jesus, saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax office, and he said to him, follow me. So he arose and followed him. Pretty simple, pretty straightforward. He saw him, called him, he got up, and he heeded that that call. He's a young Galilean. Now note that you have two kinds of Jews. You have the Judean Jews and the Galilean Jews. You have the Jews from the south. These are the real Jews. We talked about this when we were talking last week about Judas. Judas was from Judea, and he would have felt somewhat superior just because he was born in the right place, right? Do you ever feel a little superior just because of where you were born? Californians have this problem. Oregonians have this in spades. Folks who, uh, they just have pride of place. Texans, they wear spurs on their brain about just where they were born. Pride of place. Judas would have had pride of place. Born in Judea. This guy, along with most of the other disciples, has no pride of place. He was born a Galilean. As a Galilean, he would have been kind of that already little bit second class citizen. Remember we talked about the disciples were basically second class citizens as a group. The whole bunch of them, except for Judas. Jesus was a second class rabbi. 
In fact, he may have been a third or fourth class rabbi. He came from a town so bad that the other disciples, the other Galileans said, can anything good come from that town? And so there's nothing to, uh, to really make this man stand out in the fact of his birth. He's, a, he's working near Capernaum. We know this because the Bible tells us he is collecting taxes right there where Jesus is. Jesus goes out by the lake and he's there. Capernaum is a crossroads place. If you think of the Sea of Galilee sort of shaped like the real heart, not like a, a heart on a Valentine's card, but like a real heart. It's got kind of a one lobe sticking out on one side. Capernaum is up on the northwestern edge of the Sea of Galilee, sort of up in the northwestern corner. If it were Lake Tahoe, it would be north of Tahoe City. Okay? If you've got get some orientation in your mind, I don't know which one's going to hit you best, but northwest corner, and people coming to Jerusalem and to Israel from the east would typically follow the river down, the Jordan, and they would come to the Sea of Galilee, and they would make their, self, their way around that western edge if they were going anywhere to the west. And most people were going to places to the west because places to the east just were out in the desert. No one really lived out there. And so trade was coming through Capernaum quite a bit. One way or the other, either going to the east or coming from the east, it was a considerably important place for trade. And so you'd put a tax booth there where people are passing through. You can tax goods that are coming and going and recognize that if he's the tax collector in Capernaum, he's probably... Peter, James, John, and Andrew's personal tax man. He's the local IRS guy. And so he's known by these other disciples. And typically tax men are not well liked. So now you have the happy, merry little troop of, of disciples. And you decide to add their tax man to the troop. Hmm. May not have gone over as well as you might hope. And then you add a zealot to that later. And now you have the tax man and the zealot in the same group. Jesus forms churches out of the oddest bunches of people, doesn't he? Look around you. If, you, if your friends are not odd, it's you. <laughs> Number four, he's popular among the other tax men. We'll see that in a minute. He seems to be fairly popular among the other tax men, people who are in the same run of life, doing the same things. Now, obviously, you couldn't stand at that tax booth 24 hours a day, so there had to be at least some kind of a shift. Some people got a break, and so um, that, th there were other tax people around. He was perhaps, as I said, a Levite. We don't know, but the name Levi would have been given to someone who's a Levite. Perhaps a Levite, perhaps not. No way of knowing for certain. If he were a Levite, his family would have been especially instructed in the skills of instructing other people. That would make Levi, Matthew Levi, a preacher's kid. And he was, his job, his family's job was not to collect taxes. It was to teach the people of God about God. How far they might fall. Number six, he's the author of the Gospel of Matthew. It's, it, if you're looking through the Gospel of Matthew, um, watch for the fact that he doesn't call himself out when other people do. It's, it's that uh, humility. We also see it with John. They don't place themselves in the story. The story's told and he, they kind of skip their bit in the story and just go on. And he does that same thing when he's writing his Gospel. The, the church fathers say that he was the evangelist to Judea, which makes a lot of sense when you read the book. 
When you read the Gospel of Matthew, you'll see often over, often he states, this happened to fulfill the prophecy as it was in the Old Testament. And he keeps coming back to that idea. So Matthew is a person who's exact and specific, and he wants, to, wants people to understand certain things. And so as you read through his Gospel, you're going to see him saying, this happened because the prophet said it was going to happen, it fulfills that prophecy, and this happened, and this happened. And he just does that over and over again, keeps quoting the Old Testament prophecies as they related to Jesus, which makes a lot of sense if he's the evangelist to the Jews. Because they would have needed the, the, the underpinnings, the support, the, the, the understanding that Jesus wasn't out there on his own. He actually had the backing of the prophets. So there's your brief introduction to this guy. And like I said, there's not a lot of stories, so we're going to jump right into Matthew chapter 9, the calling of this young man. He apparently has had some experience with Jesus before, because very few of us without any prior experience, would do what he's about to do. We just read this, and Jesus passed, from, passed on from there. He's in Capernaum. He has just been in Peter's house. He has just healed the paralytic. He's gotten up out of the house, which was crowded and overrun with people, and stepped outside. And as he's gone outside, some people are following, following him, and he saw a man named Matthew. Can I stop right there for a second? When Jesus sees you, he really sees you. You know that movie with all the big giant blue people in it? You know what I'm talking about? Not the little people, but that's the, blue, that's the, that's the Smurfs. This is Revenge of the Smurfs. They're like 10 feet tall. Avatar, you ever heard of that movie? The one interesting thing about that movie to me, there's a lot of weird things in it, but the one thing that really got me in terms of this, the th- movies are always trying to teach something. And the one thing that I thought it really, it really nailed was that the relationship between this human trying to become a blue person and this blue person who's actually a blue person. And they're, as they're talking, they're at that moment. You probably all know where I'm going, those of you who've seen it. There's this moment. I just saw this on TV probably a month ago. And there's this moment where... He says, he finally gets it, he finally gets clear to this sort of addle-brained human being, what's going on with this group? And he says to the girls, it's it's always a boy-girl story, everyone has that boy-girl story behind it. He says to the girl, he looks into her eyes and he says, I see you. And for the first time, she's, she's like all a flutter. She gets it. He understands. He sees me. And what they're, they're, the point is, I really understand you. I get you. I, I understand what your heart is like. I, I see more than just the exterior. I see who you are. When Jesus looks at you, he looks beyond the way your skin hangs into the way your heart beats. Jesus saw a man named Matthew who was collecting taxes. And he didn't just see a man collecting taxes. He didn't see a publican. He didn't see a person to be cast aside. He saw the way the man's heart was beating toward him. He knew it was soft to the call of discipleship. And he faces him. He speaks to him right there in the tax office, right in the IRS headquarters of Capernaum. And he said to him, Follow me. He gets up. He leaves everything behind. And he follows Jesus. Now we've been looking at the disciples and we've kind of, there's a socioeconomic bunch of mixes here as well. We know that that Peter, James, and John were fishermen. Andrew, they were were a a, a consortium. They were a a family group. They, They worked together. They were partners. 
and they probably were doing okay. Middle class to upper middle class sort of guys. Um, Judas came from probably a, a family that was a little more upper middle class or upper class. Well, if, if, if tax collectors are tax collectors, and it seems that they're pretty evenly distributed this way, tax collectors were of the more wealthy classes. Um, if they weren't when they started, they were when they finished, Right? We, we find this with our little, little friend Zacchaeus. Remember the story? Zacchaeus was a wee little man. Wee little man was he? Don't make me sing the whole song. <laughs> you know, the, you got the story. You know, there's a little guy. He's, he's this short guy, and he sees Jesus coming. He climbs up in this tree so he can see Jesus. He was a tax collector, and he was a wealthy tax collector. This was a fairly common thing. They would join this themselves to the Romans to, to seek their fortune because they didn't have to collect the tax as it was named in the books. The Romans wanted 10%. They could charge 12 if they wanted. If they could get away with it, they could charge 14. Anything that they could force out of the people, the Romans were okay with them taking. So there was a salary plus bonuses. And you got to decide what your bonus was. That's why we find when Jesus is at Zacchaeus' house, he says, if I have defrauded anyone, the implication is I have defrauded some people, I will return it unto them fourfold. Which tells you he had done well in his investments, apparently, at this point. Our man, Matthew, is probably the person within the discipleship group who has the most money. He leaves his tax position and follows after Jesus. Now, I want you to consider who this guy is. Think of him this way. Think meticulous. Think accurate. Think accountant. Think MBA. If, you're, if you fit into those groups, this is your disciple. This is your guy. You, this role, this job that he has requires those kinds of skill sets. The Romans are going to give him this job because he has those kinds of skill sets. Not all tax collectors were unscrupulous, by the way. Some of them were quite honest and quite fair, and he may be among that group. Not all accountants are unscrupulous, by the way. You know, recently there was a study done of, uh, of jobs that people in America admired and did not admire. And the ones handling money were on the bottom of the list. I think that's because of the 2008 crash. All of the ones that where your person was handling money, so accountants, uh, 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 bankers, uh, anybody who was handling money, stockbrokers, they were all kind of at the bottom of the list. And you know what? Something has changed dramatically uh, over the last decade or so. Doctors... We're at the top, up near the top of the list. And preachers got up into the top five. Preachers, we haven't been in the top five in decades. So 2008 was hard on the accountants. It was good for the preachers. In his culture, in his society, his job made him an outcast. His job made him an outcast. So Jesus says, you, outcast from the rest of the population. You, tax collector for Peter, James, John, and Andrew. I'd love to have that first conversation on tape. Come and follow me. 
come and follow me. I just, I just, some things about the Bible tickle me, and I just so wish I had that. When Jesus is walking by, Peter, James, John, and Andrew, they know this guy, and Jesus looks at him, and they're like, oh, no, not him. Not him. Pick somebody else, anybody in town, but not that guy. Come and follow me. Oh, I knew he was going to do that. Why does he keep doing this to us? Pick somebody cool, not Matthew. But there he is, invited by Jesus, and he drops everything. Follows him. Just done. This is probably the the starkest turn in any of the disciples' lives. When Jesus originally calls Peter, James, John, and Andrew, who we think of as kind of the core four, the big guys, those guys take about a year and a half before they have that big catch of fish and finally say, okay, we're in, we're fishers of men. It's quite a bit of time between the initial call and the final commitment. This guy, it's like two seconds. Follow me? Okay. Done. In Mark chapter 2, he states it this way. He went out again by the sea, and all the multitude came to him. So Jesus leaves the house. He goes out by the water, and a whole bunch of people are following him. He taught them as he passed by. So he's talking and taught, teaching them. He saw Levi, son of Alphaeus. This is Matthew, same guy. Sitting in the tax office, and he said to him, follow me. So he arose and followed him. Now it happened. I like it when the Bible says this. Now it happened. Like you know, meanwhile, back at the ranch. Now it happened, as he was dining in Levi's house, that many tax collectors and sinners also sat together with Jesus and his disciples. For there were many, and they followed him. Where did Jesus suddenly get all these tax collectors and sinners? Here's the cool thing. Jesus steps out and invites one of the tax collectors into his inner circle, right? To be one of the disciples. As soon as he does that, a barrier between all the rest of the tax collectors and Jesus goes away. When they knew that he would accept one of their kind, now there's a, there's a, a wall that comes down and they feel like, okay, I can step into this now. I can follow after Jesus because, look, he let Matthew follow him. And when Matthew invites these guys to dinner, they come, and they come apparently in droves, tax collectors, sinners, Jesus. And now figure this whole story out. This is Matthew's house. And Matthew's house, as, as the, 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 the picture of this thing is laid out, it's not great in English, but this dining that they're doing, it's reclining. They're reclining at a meal. Remember, by the Roman and Greek times, you're lying on a pillow or on your neighbor. You're leaning on one arm and eating with the other arm. They're, the tables are set up so that the table sort of slopes to you, three sides. So you know the picture of the, of, of the disciples, of that, that grand picture of the Last Supper where the disciples are around three sides of the table. And you always looked at it and said, wait a minute, somebody should have their back to me. Wrong. This picture is from the servant's side of the table. So the table was set, slant, slow, slanted slightly towards you, and your bench was slanted, set, slanted slightly toward the table. And so you would be leaning toward it, and it would be leaning towards you. If your peas fall off of your knife, they roll back right at you. And the one side of the table is empty so that the servants can come and put food on the table from that side. 
And so sitting around this table at the seat of honor, therefore, in the middle is Jesus. Sitting at his right would be the host, Matthew, gathered around what is apparently a fairly large table because Jesus has quite a number of disciples, are tax collectors and sinners and miscreants of all kinds. (laughs) I love the fact that Jesus has broken down a wall. If there's somebody in your family who doesn't get it, who doesn't understand, who who, who, who can't get through the wall that is your family, inviting them in will break a hole in the dam that will invite others also. I don't know who's on the outside with you. On the, the publicans and these sinners, they were on the outside as far as culture was concerned. I don't know who's on the outside of your personal family culture. But if you break down that wall and let somebody through that gap, you will open up an opportunity. And maybe you don't want to. Maybe you're saying, I like my wall right where it is. I don't want to let those people in because I'm going to have a whole house full of miscreants if I do that. Maybe that's why you're doing it. But I'm telling you that if you want to make an impact in the world, you let that, you let that person who's on the outside in and those who have felt outsider as well would be breaking through that hole to come forward. And they've gathered around Jesus. Now, does this look like a pretty happy scene for you so far? Jesus has been invited over to Matthew's house. Everybody's around. They're having a good time. They're sharing food. Jesus uses these opportunities to teach. Have you ever noticed that Jesus never skips a dinner party? This is not by accident. He's doing this stuff on purpose. You find Jesus at dinner parties like this, tax collectors and sinners. You find dinner, Jesus at dinner parties like we looked at last week at the home, last week at the home of a Pharisee. He doesn't. He's he's not opposed to either group. He goes to both sides. If the Pharisees invite him over, he goes. If the tax collectors invite him over, he goes. Because either way, Jesus has moved into their personal space, into their house, into their house, into their family, into the kitchen, in and around their table, and he begins to share things that will change lives. He begins to teach in a space and in a place where the guard gets let down. You know how it is. You come to church, you put your guard up just a little. Right? None of you all, but other people do. Right? There's a guard up against what's coming today and what might happen. And you know, I know he's going to throw something at me and want me to do something. And I, I need to resist all of that changing business. He's going to hit one of my favorite sins today, and I'm not up for that. They, in, in the home of a person sitting around a meal where things are more relaxed, Jesus would share things and could share things that people wouldn't hear in other settings. He never skips a dinner party. I think believers are a little too persnickety about the parties we accept invitations to. Here's the deal, folks. Just because somebody else is doing something at the party you wouldn't do, doesn't mean you have to. But to show up and honor them with a yes to your invitation may give you the opportunity to touch a life that you would never have the opportunity if you didn't. Believers should be at parties with unbelievers. Should be like Jesus among the tax collectors and the sinners. A 
I guess that's enough said. When the Pharisees saw it, now stop for a second. What are these guys doing at the party? These guys keep showing up at stuff that they don't think Jesus should be at. Do you realize how weird that is? You're not supposed to be here. Oh, well, but you're here. Do they just follow Jesus around and walk in on parties? Do they just blow through the front door and say, hey, 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 I caught ya? It might be. I mean, they may just be looking for an opportunity like the press to take pictures of Jesus doing the wrong thing, perhaps. But here they are again. The Pharisees saw it. They said to his disciples, notice who they don't talk to. They don't go to Jesus with this question. They go to the disciples. It's an interesting statement here. This, this, the phrase they use, Luke uses it actually. Um, the phrase used here for the Pharisees sort of talking to the disciples, it's like a murmuring. Though It's an interesting word. It's the word itself is meant to sound like the cooing of a dove or a pigeon. Now you may think of the cooing of a dove or a pigeon as kind of a pleasant sound. In ancient times it was considered an irritation. So it's like this cooing sort of a sound. What they're doing is they're murmuring against Jesus. They're having this cooing conversation with the disciples. They're murmuring against Jesus. And it's supposed to sound like an irritating little sound. So here they are, sort of making little cooing, irritating sounds. Pick your own sound, screeching on a chalkboard if you'd like. But that's what they're supposed to convey to you. And as they're gathered around, they say, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? Disciples unequipped to answer this question. We don't know. We go where he goes, and this is the party for today. There'll be another one tomorrow. You guys can come see what goes on there. We don't miss parties. People invite us. We go. They don't know. Well, luckily, it's a closed, quiet enough, intimate enough situation that Jesus heard. And here's a, here's a piece I want to I want to say. Ha, have you ever have you ever let something escape your mouth, and then thought, Oh no, Jesus heard that. If you haven't, you need to because it's true. Words pop out of your mouth sometimes unattended. You know they're like the dog running out in the street. It just gets out. You don't know how it happened. It just boom, there it goes. Jesus heard that. He, he heard that, and, yeah, and 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 I think it would help if we had. Jesus might hear that in front of our face more regularly to kind of help us not speak without thought. Some of you are so measured and so careful and so practiced at this. I admire you immensely. The words that come out of your mouth sound like they're written in a book before they came out. I love that you're able to do that. I have never had that skill. It's, it's better. Curse words used to come out of my mouth without anybody watching over them. That stopped. I think the people you hang around with mostly affects that and, and God begins to make changes through methodologies you weren't even, hap- weren't even aware were happening and so I pray that God will continue to, to help the words stop, pass through the brain before they come out the mouth but if you ever let something get out and you would, oh no, Jesus heard that so the, these guys have said, why does your master eat with, with, with sinners and tax collectors, actually they said it like murmuring why is your sinners and Jesus heard that. 
And Jesus' ear turned and picked up, and he, he looked at the disciples who all looked baffled. And his brand new disciple is sitting there at the head of the table. Matthew, he doesn't want to say. He is the, he's the subject of the sentence. He's the tax collector and sinner. Why does your master choose turkeys like this to be his disciples? Come on. No rabbi wants these guys. There's nobody else in all of Judaism who would take these guys on as his disciples. And Jesus says, exactly. Winner, winner, chicken dinner. You got it. You understand. This is the whole point. Jesus heard that and he said, those who are well have no need of a physician. But those who are sick. Aren't you glad he said that? In, in, a, in a really honest moment here, the Pharisees had to know which side of the equation they were on. You know, the mirror test is an honest test. And then you stand in front of that mirror, you look, in the guy, look at that guy or that gal looking back at you, and you know which side of the equation you're on. Right? There, there are no people there who don't need a physician. Peter, James, John, Andrew, Matthew, everybody around the table, including the Pharisees themselves, are in the group that needs the physician. That's why he doesn't turn down anybody's dinner party. Pharisee, Sadducee, tax collector. He goes to all of them because all of us need that physician. He says, you guys, you guys don't understand. I don't hang out with people who don't need me. I just hang out with those who do. I come looking for the people who, who have an interest in getting better. I'm not looking for the people who don't. The worst state in the religious world is a state of equilibrium based on the idea that I don't need help. The worst state in the religious world is a state of equilibrium based on the idea that I don't need Jesus. The worst state in the religious world is a state of equilibrium caused by the deep heartfelt, broken misunderstanding that I don't need a Savior. I can't, I've come to help those who need me, those who are sick. I've not called, come to call the righteous but sinners to repentance. I didn't come to call the righteous because they got that way on their own. They don't need me. You know, the, the righteous that he's talking about are the self-righteous because all the other righteous got there because they answered the call. I didn't come to call those who assume they're righteous. They don't need a guy like me. They have all they need from their practice and their own self-assurance. I've 
come to call those who know their heart and know their brokenness and know they need me. That's why I walked by the tax collector's booth the other day and I saw Matthew in there and I saw his heart and I saw that there was a moment in his, in his life, there was, a, there was an opportunity. His heart had softened. It was open to me. You know, Matthew had thrown off religiosity. He had thrown Judaism so far to the curb that he had joined the Romans to help tax you guys. He had kicked off the, all the religious processes. He was tired of the blood and the guts at the Passover service. He was tired of all the religious practices that he was taught from childhood. He was tired of all of the business of religion. He was moving on. He was going over to the Romans. He was, he was helping them out against you guys. He wasn't looking for a Messiah who was going to come and fight the Romans. He, they'd be fighting against him. He wasn't looking for any of that sort of stuff. But his heart became softened when he looked in my eyes. And so I said, hey... You know all this other stuff is bogus. Follow me. A second angel flew out in Revelation chapter 14 and it said Babylon has fallen, has fallen. Babylon just is false religion, whatever form it takes. It's broken, it's fallen. It doesn't work. It doesn't work. I don't know what yours is. I don't know where your practices are, whether, you, whether you're in that moment right now where you think you got this pretty well nailed. You don't. Nobody does. The honest answer from Jesus is people need to know that they need me. That's all. And then they need to follow me. That's why I love the story of the lost son. He wanders off in prodigal living. This is, this is Matthew. He's, he's in prodigal life right now. But he hears the call in his heart, recognizes his brokenness, and he follows. And what happens when you follow Jesus? You end up at home eventually because that's where you're headed. So Jesus heard those guys and he said, Hey, a physician goes to those who are sick. I've come to call the sinners, not the righteousness, to repentance. And then he says, you Pharisees need to go and learn what this means. Now, they didn't have pocket Bibles and they didn't have their iPhone or their laptop. and They had to go home and open up the scroll or go, go back to, to discover the information in Hosea chapter 6. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. Now, you, you and I have heard this, some of you, many times before and I've always thought Jesus heard the Pharisees and he spoke to those Pharisees it never dawned on me that there may be 20 or 30 or 40 other people in the room hearing those words it never dawned on me that there was another audience listening that the tax collectors and the sinners and Matthew himself are sitting around this table. And Matthew, better than all, hears the words of Jesus. Because he's sitting right beside him. And he hears Jesus. Matthew and the, the sinners and the tax collectors hear Jesus say, I've come to call people who know they're sinners to repent. 
and the Pharisees, who don't really think they're sinners, it kind of bounces off of them. But all around the table are a bunch of people for whom these words cut right to the quick. Matthew himself has been an outcast and considered a sinner. If a Levite, the fallen son of the pastor, fallen so far and so walked away from religion so much that he's turned his back on everything Jew- Jewish and he's now in service of the Roman occupiers of the Jewish kingdom. And he hears Jesus say, I- I've come to call people like you, Matthew. The whole purpose for me being here, not just at this dinner party, but being here at all on the planet, is to call people who know they need me to come and follow me. And then I want you to remember the picture I painted for you at the beginning. All of these people in this room, all the males had been to a Passover service. It's required of them. There's no choice. If If you're a male and you're Jewish, you go to a Passover service. And when millions of people gather on the hillsides around Jerusalem, hundreds of thousands of Passover lambs are sacrificed. When hundreds of thousands of Passover lambs are sacrificed, the Levites are there in full form. Everybody, it's all hands on deck. And the Levites are the butchers of the offering. The Passover lamb is brought by the family and offered. But before the Passover lamb is taken and placed on the altar to be burned, ritual butchering takes place. And the Levites are in charge of the ritual butchering. In the entrails, begin to stack up on the backside of the altar. And the stench and the blood all of the deposits within the lamb begin to collect flies and begin to drain. And the blood that, that they would work on from all of the lambs that were sacrificed, beyond the blood that was captured, the blood that's drained out of these offerings is running down and across those floors, those stone floors made slippery by the blood of thousands of lambs. The mess and the muck and the Levites are walking in it and it's, it's climbing up their legs as it splashes up on their clothes. And that red stain is beginning to cover them. And here at the, the dinner party is one man who's turned his back on all of that. He's turned his back on those exercises. He's he's seen the mess that is religion. He's seen the sausage being made. He's seen the, the corruption that lies behind all of this ceremony. He's experienced firsthand. And Jesus says, Go and learn what this means, Matthew. My heart's desire is a transformation in you that makes you merciful, not your sacrifice. 
to see the blood of the Lamb and not see an animal that somehow makes you different but be made different by seeing the animal. To see the sacrifice and to feel the heartbeat stop. To see the blood run out and not see some earning of yours, but see my death foreshadowed. And in the death of that creature be made a different person. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. I desire for your heart to be changed, not your hands to be busy. If your heart is transformed, Matthew, your hands will take care of themselves. And to all of us unknown disciples, tax collectors and sinners gathered around the table this morning, Jesus says, I come to call those who know they need me to follow. And I just want you to know while you follow what I'm really after is a changed heart, not a changed practice. Let your heart be transformed and your practice, it'll follow. Let's pray.